y'all for joining us on Facebook Live and whatever source you are on. We are glad that you're here, and we have a couple of cool things happening, as they were mentioned on the video. If you're interested in being a part of the security team, we would love for you to let us know that. Again, to our um, email address, please send and let us know that you're interested in doing that. Got a cool thing going on. D Now, by the way, I don't know if y'all know this. Some of y'all might be brand new. Discipleship Now is taking place. They're actually finishing up this morning, uh, right now, next door in the Next Gen Room. Uh, I got a chance to go over there last night, and it was amazing. I'm just so thankful uh, for Pastor Tim, Pastor Katie, just loving on our kids, raising up that next generation to know God, to love him, and to live according to the purpose that he's given to us. And I'm just thankful for all those who are helping uh, make that possible for the families who are part of that as well. It, um, I can't help but stress how important it was and how good it was for my soul uh, to watch some of those young people over there raising their hands during worship and just engaging. You know, a lot of times people say blanket statements, the next generation's gone, they don't know Jesus. They don't love Jesus. It's like, no, our, our children and your children are learning to love Jesus, to know Jesus. And I just want to say thank you for making that a priority in your life and in your family's life. And so I, it was just a huge blessing last night for me to be a part of that. And so anyway, also I was mentioned to this. There is a cell phone. If you're missing a cell phone that was in the ladies' restroom, I was supposed to bring this up. I'm going to set this right. Erica, if you don't mind taking this. It's gonna be right there at the front row if you want it after the service. If not, we're gonna sell it and it's gonna go to a good purpose. Um, all, all money is going to go to good causes and um, yeah, so we're super thankful for that. Our monthly memory verse as we finish up, it's gonna be on the screen behind me. I've been working with my family. I'm still not as comfortable as I ought to be so my wife's probably gonna say it. Let's do it together, ready? You are God's chosen people. You are holy and dearly loved. So put on tender mercy and kindness as if they were your clothes. Don't be proud, be gentle and patient. Okay, we've been doing this as a family. Next week, for those of you who have kiddos, they're going to be saying their memory verse from month one, January, and also February. So work with them on that, practice that with them, learn it, memorize it, enjoy it. Knowing God's word is such a blessing. Great example of that is Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness and then on the cross. Every single time something came up, what did he do? He repeated back the word of God, not just to quote it, but he lived it. Even in his last dying breath, he's what? He's bleeding out scripture. If he is our example, if he's, as we're gonna talk about this morning, our great high priest, how much more ought we to be seeking to memorize, to learn, and to soak in the word of God. We are in Hebrews chapter four, verse 14 this morning. So far in Hebrews, we've been covering a lot of ground uh, piece by piece and week by week as we've been covering some of the different topics, but we've looked at that Jesus is the son of God. We've looked at that though God spoke in many different ways to many different people in the Old Testament, now his son the heir of all things, God himself in the flesh, right, has come to deliver to us the definitive last and final word. When Jesus on the cross gave up his spirit before he did so, with his hands stretched wide, nailed to the cross, not because he couldn't come down, but because he loved us. For God so loved the world. That's why he stayed on that cross for us. He said, it is what? It's finished, we don't add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We proclaim it in truth. We receive it. We rest in what God has done through his son, Jesus 
Christ. And so we see that not only is he a great high priest, that he's made sacrifice, that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, which means he's what? He's victorious, waiting till all of his enemies become a footstool. He's greater than the angels. And if we have such a great message, how can we neglect such a great salvation as we start in chapter two? And then we talked about all the great things that Jesus has done and that he became just like us. I mean, sometimes we wonder about it, like, does God even care? And the answer is, does he care? He loves you. He became just like you and me, tempted in every single way, yet without sin. He doesn't leave you in your mess. He joins you to pull you out. He doesn't give you good advice from long distance. He gets in there with you, for those of you who are going through a hard time, feeling like the worse the situation gets, the more lonely you are, and God's over here saying, I've never left you, never once. Though you may turn your back on me, though you may try to run from me, I've never left you. And because God is sovereign, and because God is omnipotent, because God is a God who is there, he's never left you even when you've ran. He's been with you all along the way. So we find as we jumped into chapter three two weeks ago, we saw that he's greater than Moses. And as Moses was faithful in the house, well, Jesus is not just faithful in God's house, that Jesus is the builder, right? The builder, and he's worthy of more glory than Moses. And Moses was the greatest teacher for the Jewish people to look back upon. He says, Jesus is far superior, not even worth comparing to, but he's far superior than Moses. And he talks about entering into the rest. What's the rest? The rest of God, which is found in Jesus. The rest of God, not just from our physical labors, but from our spiritual burden of sin in our lives. We know that it separates us from God. In our very own consciences, even those who've never been brought up in church, we know we have failed our own standard. Every time we say, you ought not to do that, and we do the same thing, even if you're not basing it on the Ten Commandments, you're breaking the own law that's in your heart. Romans 2 tells us that God gave us a conscience You can be in the middle of nowhere and God gave you a conscience. You can sear the conscience, but it doesn't mean you didn't have a conscience, amen? We know what is right. We know what is wrong. Almost all cultures have many things in common. And then my dad last week, he enlightened all of us to let us know that Paul wrote Hebrews. If you were confused at all, and I messed up X amount of weeks ago, my dad, because of his age, knows that Paul wrote Hebrews. (laughs) I can't wait for him to be in the next service. Because now we're all like, we're all confident Paul wrote it and I was wrong and all those scholars that I read were wrong too and church history, they're wrong too. (laughs) Sorry, I gotta mess with my dad. He tried to throw me under the bus. He just didn't know I was driving it, you know. (laughs) He just didn't know I was driving it. So what we see here, he talked about the rest of God. He focused heavily on Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, right? We rest in him, all those who are burdened and heavy laden, come unto me, and I'll give, you, I'll give you rest. So when we see these verses going forward, he says that Jesus is the rest of God. Remember what Jesus said in the Gospels? I am the Lord of the Sabbath, which means I am what? I'm in control of it. I'm the one who gives you rest. And so we see a transition happening here as we pick up in verse 14 of chapter 4. The transition of verse 14 actually picks up from chapter 3, verse 6. We've been filling in the blanks there, but chapter three, verse six, talks about the high priesthood of God. Now we jump back into it, and we see that he is a great high priest, and because of that, we're to what? Hold fast. Don't lose focus. Chapter three, verse one, consider Jesus, right? The apostle of our faith. Consider him, think about him, meditate on him. 
Don't lose sight of who he is. Chapter five, or chapter four, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices of sin for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin just as he does for those of the people. And no one can take the honor upon himself but only when, God, when called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be high priest. He was appointed by him who has said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayer and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he who heard because of his reverence, and he was heard because of his reverence, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that is the word of the Lord this morning. I hope you're okay as we go through this text this morning because we got a lot of, of scripture um, that we're going to be covering, so I hope you're okay with that. And we're going to be running through some of those, mostly staying actually in the book of Hebrews because from chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 10, verse 18, this big, massive section, right? We've prepared ourselves to get into the middle of the heart of the book, and it's all about the priesthood of Jesus. The hard part about Hebrews is if you don't have any understanding or background of the Old Testament, it doesn't make nearly as much sense as it could and should. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not going to get anything from it, so don't hear that from me. You're going to get a lot from it. But my thing is, is that the more we know about the foundation in which God built upon with the Old Testament, the more clearly, clearly we understand Jesus is the fulfillment thereof. The more clearly we understand that. And so number one, if you're taking down notes with me today, is this. The Father chose Christ to be the climactic and final high priest. He chose him. God the Father chose him to be the great high priest. Now, in verse 14, when you see that right there, it says, since then we have a great high priest. It's redundant. You, you don't find great high priests in Scripture. You find different names for the high priest, but typically it's high priest or the one who is mediating. So there's the priesthood as a whole, and then there's a high priest who is nominated, elected, and is going into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he offers sacrifice for his sin and for the sin of the people, right? And so what we find here is when it says the great high priest, it's almost like saying a high, high priest or a great, great priest. Like it's, it's redundant to prove a point. When Jesus says, for instance, in the Gospels, truly, truly, I say unto you, it's another way of saying what I'm saying is true because it's Jesus. So he starts out with true, but then he says truly, truly, which is another way of saying listen up. Like pay attention. Don't just hear me. Listen to what I'm saying and soak it into your lives. And that's really what's happening in verse 14 when he says, great high priest. We see that God 
chose him specifically using verse from chapter uh, 5, verse 5. He uses Psalms 2, 7. He says, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Verse 6, he uses Psalms 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God chooses people for different purposes and for different callings throughout life. Like every single one of us sitting in the room who is a born-again believer of God, like every one of us has a calling. As long as you're breathing, God is seeking to use you. A lot of us may say, man, what I'm going through, there's no way God would want me. What I've been through, there's no way God would want me. All, all the mess in my life, all the entanglement in my life, all the stuff, all the junk, there's, there's just no way he wants me anymore. I mean, I know that I'm saved, but I'm pretty much on the back burner for the rest of my time here on earth. And what we find in the scriptures is absolutely the opposite. Chapter 4, verse 15, what is he? He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He doesn't just look down and say, you did it again, you idiot. So many of us were so hard on ourselves and on other people, and that's not Jesus. That's not what we see in the Gospels, and that's not what's declared about the personhood of Jesus Christ in verse 15, and then in chapter five, verse two. He deals gently with the wayward and the ignorant. He deals gently with those people. And those people, that's us. That's all of us at different times and in different places. Just as God chose Adam and Eve, just as God chose Enoch. It says that Enoch walked with God and then Enoch was not, like God took him up. It says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord out of all the people in creation at that point in time. Noah, God chose Noah. God chose Abraham. Abraham was living in Ur worshiping false gods according to Genesis 12. According to Joshua 24, like he wasn't anybody quote unquote special per se, but yet God said, I'm choosing you to leave this place, to leave your people and to go to a place that you don't know and to be faithful and to follow me. God chose you out of all the world to know his son Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit. God chose you. Some of you might've come in here this morning with your head down and heart heavy and God's over here saying, I chose you. You are a son or a daughter of the most high God. I chose you. There's no reason to be down when God's the one who says you're up. It doesn't mean your circumstances aren't bad. It just simply means your salvation is secure. Go one chapter back, you can rest. You can rest in what God has done. God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. God chose Jacob and not Esau. God chose Israel and not Egypt. God chose David and not his brothers. Are y'all, you following the line here? God has every right to choose you sitting here this morning, if you're married, did you choose your spouse? Lord willing, yes. Lord willing, yes. And some of y'all are over here like, man, I tell you what. If I knew what I knew today, plug for the marriage conference. I'm encouraging everybody to come have a good time with us. Limited spots. Plug in that now, unashamed. Out of the multitude of people who start following Jesus, what does he do? He chooses 12. Is Jesus wrong for that? Is he doing an exclusive club? No, he's not wrong for that. He chooses the 12 because he has a purpose and a calling and a mission. Within the 12, he chooses three to be in his inner squad, if you will. God chooses the bride of Christ, the church, us, his people, out of all the world. He has every right to choose, and he does. God elects, and God calls, and God predestines. This is scripture. God does these things so if the old system of the priesthood and sacrifice worked, then why did God send his son? If it was all good, 
If the slaughtering of animals again and again and again, if that was good, then why did he send his son? Because it wasn't working. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 says this, For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So why did God give us the law? God gave us the law so we might know his heart. We might know his character. We might know that he's what? He's holy. God is holy. God is set apart. God is different. And he calls us to do what? Be holy. We're called saints. Set apart from the world. We're in the world, but we're set apart from the world to live what? As light, not as darkness. That's what God's called us to. Romans 3.20 says it this way. For by the work of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. In your worship, God, this morning, Galatians 2.16 and 21. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus, in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be what? Justified. Have you ever tried to keep the law? Even just for a moment. Even just for an iota, just for a second. Just keeping the law, not only with your external actions, but with your heart. You shall not, what, covet? You shall not murder? You shall not commit adultery? Jesus makes all these things very much so, not just physical, but spiritual. He says, because what? Where does it come from? It starts in our heart. Long before adultery, there's adultery within our heart. So what does Paul say if we can't keep the law and if Jesus is the only way to God? What does he say? Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for what? No purpose. He says, I don't nullify it. I don't take it away. I look to Jesus and say, amen and amen and amen. Thank you, Lord, for saving a wretch like me. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving a person like me who doesn't deserve it. I can't earn it, never could, always have been a messed up in some form or fashion. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. So the king in the Old Testament was to be a representative of God to the people of Israel. The priest in the Old Testament, however, was to represent the people to God. Y'all following that? King to represent God to the people, though they did a horrible job. But the priests were to what? Represent the people to God in relationship, and that's why you had all of these sacrifices that were taking place. The priesthood was temporal. Look at verse, chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law... What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It's a shadow. The Old Testament was always to point us to who? Jesus the sacrifices were about Jesus. The festivals of rest and holy convocation, it was all about the people of God coming into what? Into relationship with Jesus. You see, the priesthood of Jesus is eternal, for it is after the order of Melchizedek. Give me two weeks and we're going to get into chapter 7 about Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 22 says this. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, 
He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. Are y'all following that? Jesus will never die, cannot die, has defeated death, is the first fruit of the resurrection which points to what's gonna happen to us on that day. He is the great high priest. The one that was always yearned after, looked for, for in man, we are what? We are weak, we are sinful, we are tempted, and we fail. In Christ, tempted in every single fashion that we have been tempted, yet without sin. Therefore, he can sympathize with us. And he can deal gently with our sin. So what all does this mean for us? It means we can rest. It means we can rest. I don't have to earn it. We always talk about it, you know, always trying to earn status and, and earn people's favor and, and earn love and earn respect and earn all these different trying to things. We're just trying to earn it. It's been done. We can rest. I watch someone that I know from a distance, his life is just falling apart because he won't turn to the one who can give him rest. And not only is his life falling apart right now, but he's like practically pouring gasoline on a fire in the process of it, trying harder and harder and harder because everything's already crumbled, everything's already burned down. So rather than in humility, humility is what to recognize who we really are. Rather than in humility to cry out to God, forgive me, Lord, let me build off a solid foundation, he's, come, he's still working. He's still running. The problem with too many of us is we are working and we are running, but we're working at the wrong job and running in the wrong direction. Jesus is the way, he's the truth, he's the life. Rest in what he's done. Secondly is this, the obedience of the son. When we see in verse seven through 10, the obedience of the son is to be imitated by the children of God. It's to be imitated by us. I mean, it's a perfect obedience. And we're like, but you're not, we're not perfect, Josh. I get it. But we perfectly seek to obey him. Ephesians chapter five, verse one. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. What do children do? If you spend enough time with them, man, they, they talk like you and they act like you and they walk like you and they do stuff like you do. They're interested in things you're interested in. And you're like, well, my kid's not interested. I don't know about your kid, but most kids are interested in what you do. Even if it's only for a period of time, they still want to know because they know it's important to you and they know that they want to be important to you as well. Therefore, they line themselves up subconsciously without even realizing it, saying, man, whatever dad likes, man, I like that too. Whatever mom thinks is important, I think it's important too. We do that as people. Let us do that as children of God. How do we do that? By doing what you're doing this morning, by showing up and being a part of the body of God, by singing songs of praise to some of you, tears in the process of singing because your circumstances are that hard, needing to be reminded that no matter what you feel like, feeling alone doesn't mean you're alone because God is with you. And when you allow his people to surround you, but by a great cloud of witnesses, there's more, there's more. We begin to imitate him as we do what we spend time with him. 
According to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, as we stare into the glory of God, we are transfixed, we are transformed from one degree of glory to what another, to becoming like Jesus Christ. The more you spend time with someone, the more you become like someone. Therefore, what? Guard who you spend time with and make sure you spend time with the right people. Make sure you spend time with the Lord. We see in these verses pictured here for the most part, it says that he cried out to God. Look at verse seven. With loud cries and tears. We see in many cases in the gospels where Jesus went all night and prayed. When big decisions were coming, he prayed. Before he started his ministry, he had 40 days of what he was praying to the Lord. He was fasting unto God. What? He's been faithful unto him. He's been obedient to him. We see Christ exemplifying the life that we are to live and his commandments according to 1 John 5, 3 is what? It's not burdensome for those who what? They know him. It's not burdensome. He, piece by piece, helps us desire new desires that align with his will. We begin to love the things he loves. We begin to enjoy the things that he enjoys. And so you're saying, well, is it, is it easy? And I'm not saying necessarily it's easy, Obedience does take effort, but the alternative is disobedience. And what does that bring? Destruction, death, and chaos. Like, that's the opposite. Specifically, as a Christian, it is insane for us to do the very opposite of God's word when you've got it. For those of you who don't know Jesus and are brand new to this whole thing and are just saying, I just want to hear somebody. I just want to read the Bible a little bit. I want to know more about this Jesus you guys are proclaiming. Then welcome to the party. But when we live a sinful life, I can guarantee it. No profit here, but I can guarantee it. You will reap destruction. If you live a sinful life, you will reap it. There's no way around it. What you think you're doing behind closed doors that no one knows will be found out for God is not mocked. You know what I'm saying? Like There is not a single one of us in here who gets away with anything, and we should praise God as his children that we don't, so that he can do what? Make us holy like he is so that we can enjoy this life to the fullest. When we're living in sin, we never sin in isolation. Our sin always affects every single person we are in contact with. Specifically, our sin affects the family of God and the witness of Jesus Christ. So what do we see here? What's the alternative? Well, if it's difficult at times to obey God in the process of it, how much harder is it to change complete course? How much harder is it for an addict just to stop what started as a small thing and we got larger and larger and larger? Is it not harder for them to stop in the end than it is in the beginning? It is. Ask someone who, as a Christian, is married to an unbeliever and say, is it easy? Not a chance. Not a chance. You have two different ideologies. You have two different things that you wake up for in the morning. You have two different purposes in mind. It is not easy. It is extremely difficult. It's difficult. Try to ask someone who is bouncing back from bankruptcy how that works for them. Is it easy? No, it's not easy at all. It's very difficult to come back. So what am I saying here? It is far easier to spend the energy that is needed to obey God, to live for God, than it is to go down the other path, the one which leads to destruction, which this morning, you know as well as I do, it leads there. No way around that. No way around 
doing something of that nature. So does it take effort? Absolutely. Inside of your worship guide there, I want you to look at something. Obedience is the byproduct of faith in and love for God. It's the byproduct. It's not something that you're forced to do. It is the natural tendency of a loving child to a loving father. I want to do what makes you proud. I want to do what's pleasing to you. Obedience is the byproduct of faith. And what does that look like? Well, our D-Now students on Saturday had a wonderful opportunity to go up to Summer Grove Baptist Church. And there was literally, from what I understand, thousands of people basically wrapped around the uh, church as a whole in their vehicles waiting to get water and some basic supplies. And they really didn't have hardly anybody serving at that moment. And all of our kids, your kids, are up there handing out water bottles, handing out food, whatever resources they had. And some of the kids were like, man, it was awesome. It made me feel so good. Some of the people even tried to offer me money, but I told them, no, like people are dying and yearning for other people to love them in a practical way. What obedience is a byproduct of faith. It is a declaration of our love for Jesus. Obedience in our life is a declaration of love for Jesus. Look on the screen with me. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and make myself known to him, manifest myself to him. Verse 23, and Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Ready for it? Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. What is Jesus getting after? If what's important to Jesus is important to us, what are we going to do? We're going to try our best to do it. We're not trying to earn anything. We're not trying to say, God, you owe me one. Wrong theology. God doesn't owe us anything. If God never gave us anything, God would still owe us nothing. He's the creator, we're the creation. But God is gracious and God is kind and what God is gentle. And therefore what the Holy Spirit who is within us, now the overflow in our lives is to do what? Good works. We want to obey him. He exemplified it to us. See, the picture that we find in verse seven through 10 is the picture of the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is crying out with tears to the one who is able to save him from death and he's heard because he is reverent. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through suffering. We talked about this uh, a few weeks ago. He was never unobedient. He didn't have to like learn how to be obedient in that sense. What was it? He went through everything we went through and was perfected through it so that he can be what? One who sympathizes with us. He ran the race and didn't fail. We run the race and we fall short of the mark of the glory of God. Jesus never did it. And that's why he can be called our what? Our high, high priest who loves us and provides so graciously for us. And so because of Christ's obedience, last point is this, boldness to draw near to the Father is our joy and privilege because of Jesus. That's our privilege. And that's our joy. We can boldly, my version says with confidence, I don't know what yours says, but with boldness we draw near to the Father with joy 
We draw near to the Father with boldness. Verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace for time, for help in time of need. What are we doing here? What's happening here? This verse, these four verses, or three verses, are a transition within the book itself. They're helping us transition into a new part of the book when we talk about the high priesthood of God. When we see in verse 14, it says that he's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, therefore let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15, he is able to sympathize. What does that mean? What does it mean he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses? He can feel it. Sympathize there in the Greek means that he feels it. It's a felt thing. As a parent, if you have kids out there and you see them go through something traumatic, whether it's physical or emotional, you can feel it with them, can't you? And you're like, well, I mean, I can't truly feel it. No, does your heart not burden you? Does it not hurt within you to see one of your children hurt? Does it not? The answer is it absolutely does. This is the exact same thing. Jesus is not just from a far distance saying, well, hope you get better. He says, I've been through it. I see your pain. I don't just see it from a distance. I'm gonna meet you where you're at. That's the high priest that we serve, that we love, and that we call king. Now look one more time. Go to chapter five, verse two. What does he say? He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Okay, Jesus was never beset with weakness, but he can deal what? He deals gently. The word gently here literally means he gets in our mess with us and pulls you out, helps you in the midst of it. Isaiah 43, what does he say? I'm gonna be with you in the fire. I'm gonna be with you in the river. I'm gonna be with you. It's not that we won't go through times of testing and trial. It is that he will be with us and that he is sufficient and that his grace is enough. See, Jesus doesn't just hold back as though we're these kids that he can't stand, brother or sister that he can't stand. No, this is his, this is his disposition, gentleness. This is how he sees us. It's not forced patience. He's, he's patient with us. He's kind. The word here, ignorant and wayward, in the, in the Old Testament, this is kind of a reference to it. The ignorant were the sins that we commit without recognizing what we're doing. Right? Those who commit sins accidentally. That's, that's what it's looking at. In the Old Testament, there was only forgiveness of sin. There was only sacrifice for the sins that people didn't mean to commit. That they weren't even aware that they were committing. But there was no sacrifice for intentional sin, there was none. And so what is he saying here? Even in the biggest, most ignorant, and sometimes most intentional sins in our life, Jesus still meets us where we're at. Now as we're gonna talk on next week, we don't go on living in sin. That is not a Christian. That is not a Christian. 
We don't embrace sin. That is not a Christian. We don't long to continue in sin as a lifestyle. That is not a Christian. But Jesus is gentle with us in our weakness to meet us there, help us up, pick us up, clean us up, and put us back on the right path. That is our great high priest. One question before we leave out. Does it not freak you out just a little bit that it says in verse 16 that we with confidence draw near to the throne of grace? I've, I've read that almost all my life and I've just been like, ah, yeah, we draw near to the throne of grace. No one drew near to God. Even the high priest only came once a year behind the veil, only once. And he came with what? Blood of a sacrifice. He did not just roll in there once a year. If he came any other time, God would kill him for being irreverent. You don't just approach God. It doesn't happen. And what is he telling us here in Hebrews? Come boldly. Come joyfully. Come with a grateful heart. Come with all the joy that you can muster in your life before the throne of grace so that you can receive what? You need that mercy and grace for what you're going through, don't you? You need that mercy and grace for the temptations in your life, don't you? You need the mercy and grace of God to be able to continue on the straight and the narrow, the path that God has called us to. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. The God we serve is not a God who is just someone out there. He is personal. He is engaged with us in relationship. And wherever you are right now and whatever burdens you are carrying this morning, he is here to meet you. And he tells you to cast your anxieties upon him for he cares for us. Let us stand. Let us pray before we sing and bring worship to our God and our King. Father, we thank you, Lord God. For the opportunity it is to read your word, to study, Lord God, to sing songs of praise. Father, we thank you that because of the obedience of Jesus Christ, because of the calling that you placed on his life, because he was willing to go for the cross, because he was willing to be shamed and humiliated, but for the joy that was set before him, he withstood and went all the way through with it, Lord God. And we want to thank you this morning for our salvation. We want to thank you for the love that you have poured out upon us. We want to thank you that we can come boldly before your throne of grace right now, right here at this moment. No matter what yesterday held, no matter what the last week held, Lord God, you are faithful. Your word is true. Your promises are upheld, Lord God. We come before you this morning thankful, Lord God, to be able to praise you, thankful to know that we are heard thankful to know that you are gentle. Thankful to know that we're loved. Father, for every single person in this room, our purpose is to know you. It's to be in relationship with you. And that is only possible through Jesus. May we all cry out 
that Jesus is Lord and that he is Savior. May you forgive us, Lord God, of our sins. May we have the joy and the privilege of knowing you and living for you for the rest of our lives. Father, may this song of praise be a reflection of our heart and nothing less. Father, may your people who need prayer, may they come down now. Father, may the prayer team be ready just to receive them and just to love them where they're at. Father, for some, maybe it's just to come to the steps and just kneel before you and just to worship, Lord God. All of us are in a different place. Father, but I ask that in the name of Jesus, you meet us exactly where we're at so that you might bring us to where we need to be in Jesus' name.